0: we're now talking about genocide going beyond the risk and occurring now because we're talking about the imposition of conditions designed to bring about the end of life
1: medieval crimes are being committed
0: i come with clean hands victims of horrific crimes want justice we don't have anything better than this
1: this is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg.
2: All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So our subject today is Armenia, and there's this variety of justice-connected elements that are really going on right now. In fact, I suppose we might end up having to record an extra stop press announcement if something big changes during this week. This has been on my agenda for a while because it was also a case brought before the International Court of
1: Justice by Armenia against Azerbaijan, and then later again also by Azerbaijan against Armenia, but we'll get into the back and forth after.
2: Yeah, and we have Armenia's move to join the ICC. And we have allegations of genocide being bandied around. So before we get into all of that in some depth, let's introduce our guest. Uh, Hi, it's Dr. Melanie O'Brien.
0: Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Great to be with you again.
1: Yeah, Melanie is a friend of the pod. She is the visiting professor for the Centre of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Minnesota, and of course, also still Associate Professor of International Law at the University of Western Australia Law School, and importantly, the president, just re-elected, I heard, of the International Association of Genocide Scholars.
2: And just to remind you, the times that Mel's been on the podcast for, I think most recently, was when we were talking about What kind of obligations might be on states to actually deal with genocide? When does the obligation to intervene kick in? We also had her on Myanmar when that case was right at its height being discussed at the International Court of Justice. And we've also had her on a Ukraine podcast talking about the different uh, ways towards justice. And I think for me what connects all of those things is the myths and the expectations and the lack of clarity around what happens with genocide and allegations of genocide. And I think that that fits into this podcast as well. What we're going to
1: kick off with is Armenia joining the ICC. Apparently some barriers were removed and they've now gone to the parliament to seek ratification of the Rome Statute.
2: Yeah, this is really big, obviously, in our world, anytime anybody wants to join the ICC. But it's also very big geopolitical news because Russia is seen as one of Armenia's main partners right since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, well, why don't you fill us in with some of the details, Steph? Just give us a couple of the factoids. steph a Yes. Well, Armenia signed the Rome Statute in 1999,
1: but it hasn't ratified it. This year, on March 24, just a few days after the ICC, the International Criminal Court, issued an arrest warrant for Russian leader Vladimir Putin for alleged war crimes in Ukraine, the Armenian Constitutional Court concluded its months-long deliberations and, citing some constitutional changes that were made in the country since 2004, removed some legal obstacles to clear the way for Armenia's possible ratification of the Rome Statute.
2: So Mel, why don't you pick up the story from there and try and help us understand uh, some of the significance of this? It's an interesting legal and political situation
0: because, as you mentioned, Armenia had signed the Rome Statute but not ratified it. And that was initially found to be because it was incompatible with the constitution for Armenia to ratify the Rome Statute. And it took some time, but they then made amendments to the constitution, which, as you've mentioned, in March this year, the constitutional court then re-evaluated the situation, looked at the new version of the constitution and deemed that there are no longer those barriers for Armenia to ratify the Rome Statute. So obviously this has all taken quite a few years of, of process, it, even that in itself itself. Putting aside any other issues that are there is quite an interesting legal development and the changes that are coming through. So most recently, the request has been made to the parliament to ratify the Rome Statute. So that's a really positive development. Obviously, we're always looking to have countries join the ICC and become a party to that system. I think it's also important because it will lead to Armenia's obligation to strengthen their own domestic law which in itself, it's criminal law with regards to international crimes, is lacking in content. And so that's always an important thing when a state becomes a party to the ICC under their obligations to implement the Rome Statute is to ensure that they do have the substantive criminal law available. So that will be interesting to see how long it takes Armenia to make those amendments to their own criminal law to ensure that they have comprehensive international criminal law
2: provisions there. Now, I know you've actually been in Armenia. It's in the news because there is actually a conflict going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh, this small enclave. It feels to me like this is all connected to this potential joining of the ICC.
0: Yeah, so I was most recently in Armenia in May. In fact, one of the reasons being attending a conference on the Nagorno-Karabakh situation and talking about accountability and justice issues relating to that. So this has, this is a situation with quite a lengthy history dating back to Soviet times where Armenia and Azerbaijan were part of the USSR and then the breakup of the USSR and states gaining their independence at that time. And the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh has been disputed between the two countries, the history being that it has an ethnic Armenian population that has lived there for a very long time, although this fact is disputed by Azerbaijan. However, Azerbaijan is the only country to dispute that fact It is well known in history from many different sources that the ethnic Armenians have lived there for at least hundreds of years, if not longer. The the claims of Azerbaijan are that even the Armenian culture there is not really Armenian culture and it comes from from elsewhere. So they make these, these bizarre propaganda claims to deny the existence of the ethnic Armenian population that are there. So, you know, this has led to dispute over the territory where Azerbaijan claims that it is Azerbaijani territory and Armenia also claims that it's Armenian territory. It resulted in the area essentially being an autonomous region. However, there's been multiple conflicts in the 1990s and up to today. We have the 44-day war from two years ago, which essentially, even though there was a ceasefire, there remains an ongoing situation of sporadic armed conflict in the region. And although Armenia's president has ultimately agreed that the territory is Azerbaijani, this was, of course, done under pressure and not what Armenians want and not what the people of Nagorno-Karabakh want. There is a situation of ethnic cleansing going on. The Azerbaijanis are creating a situation where the ethnic Armenians have essentially a choice. And that choice is either to leave the area for their own safety and so no longer be living in the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh or to stay there and risk the human rights abuses and even worse, international crimes that are being committed against ethnic Armenians. But what has happened since the 44-day war is that with the ceasefire and the peace agreement that took place, Russian peacekeepers were allocated to the area and to ensure that there is, for example, free traffic, free passage through what is known as the Lachan Corridor, which is an area of land that links Nagorno-Karabakh and particularly the area of Artsakh, which is ethnic Armenian, with Armenian territory proper, enabling them to, for example, bring food in, bring medicines and supplies in, but also to transport people to Armenia for healthcare if they need to go for more serious healthcare. So that's essentially where the situation was with the peace agreement at the end of the 44-day war. And now you've been on the ground,
1: at least in Armenia. I remember this Nagorno-Karabakh being a thing in the 90s. I remember it being a thing in the early 2000s, and then you had the war. Now I'm seeing it all rehashed at the court. But The most recent thing, apart from uh, Armenia's plan, move to join the ICC, and and we'll talk later about maybe how this is connected, is the current allegations of genocide. You talk about ethnic cleansing, but there is a report circulating, being very pushed by the Armenian side, that there's an ongoing
0: genocide against Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh. Two years ago, I co-authored a blog post with my colleague, Surin Manukian and we wrote about the risk of genocide two years ago. It was a blog post, so we couldn't possibly cover all the risk factors. But if you take the list of risk factors, they are there. If not all of them, then most of them are there. Things like previous experience of genocide by the Armenians from the Turks. And in this situation, Turkey is supporting Azerbaijan. So they are part of this. So it, it still does have a connection to the 1915 Armenian genocide. That's just one example. The risk factors are quite numerous here. But in looking at the behaviour of Azerbaijan, there has been an extensive campaign of hate speech against the Armenians from the Azerbaijani authorities. And we're not just sort of talking about, you know, one statement once by one person, we're talking about consistent statements, not just by President Aliyev, but also many others in the leadership regime of Azerbaijan government, but also coming out of the media, coming out of all sorts of different sources through religious entities, but also educational institutions, professors, for example. And and there's been warnings that there's a whole generation of Azerbaijanis who have been essentially indoctrinated to hate Armenians. And so there is a fear that the idea of future reconciliation would be very difficult to achieve because of that. However, the reason I'm talking about these is because they are genocide risk factors. As I said, there are only some of them. And we do have the presence of, at a minimum, war crimes being committed um, in the context of the conflict where Azerbaijan is taking Armenian soldiers as prisoners of war, but then not affording them the rights that they are entitled to as prisoners of war, for example, under the Third Geneva Convention. And I will point out that Azerbaijan is a party to all of the Geneva Conventions and so is obligated to comply with those rules of international humanitarian law. Those rules, however, are also customary international law. Um, So there are allegations that Azerbaijan has executed prisoners of war, has tortured prisoners of war. There are videos of torture and execution of soldiers that Azerbaijan has captured and even also of civilians that they have captured. So when we're talking about the human rights abuses that are being carried out, we are talking about actually serious international crimes. And in the context of the risk factors of genocide that we've been looking at for at least the past two years, if not more, where we're talking about hate speech, we're talking about specific targeting because they are Armenians, we are talking about the destruction of Armenian culture and Armenian cultural artifacts, such as khachkars, which are essentially like tombstones, memorial stones, churches. When you put all this together, there's high risk of genocide. So two years ago, I was talking about the risk of genocide. Late last year and early this year, the International Association of Genocide Scholars Executive Board released statements where we talked about again, our concern of the risk of genocide in Nagorno-Karabakh, bringing these together. However, I think what we now see is that we are beyond risk and that is because of the blocking of the Lachin Corridor. And because of the blocking of this corridor, that means that the people in Nagorno-Karabakh have no outside access. In March this year, I was in Canberra in Australia at Parliament House and I was meeting with representatives from Nagorno-Karabakh with Australian politicians, and they were telling us about the dire situation back in March this year. They were already struggling to get food. The shelves in the stores were already empty back in March this year. When it's winter, it's extremely hard to grow their own food because the ground is hard, so they need to have greenhouses if they're going to grow their own food. So already in March, people were running out of food. They lacked medicine. They were already being blocked from travelling outside of Nagorno-Karabakh to get healthcare. So people have already been dying in the area and we know now there's at least one person has died from starvation in the area that has been reported. And people are dying because they cannot leave Nagorno-Karabakh to enter Armenia to get more serious healthcare treatment that they need. So that's why we're now talking about genocide going beyond the risk and occurring now because we're talking about the imposition of conditions designed to bring about the end of life here so blocking access of food healthcare and even at this point humanitarian aid as we know the international committee of the red cross has even been barred from bringing in humanitarian aid to the area
1: these are all things that came up in the armenia azerbaijan case at the icj There are actually two cases It started in 2021 with Armenia filing a case against Azerbaijan under the CERD. And then, of course, Azerbaijan turned around and filed a claim against Armenia, also for violations of CERD. And for us, it's very difficult to weed out what is what. We had two different hearings on provisional measures. The first one before the blockade of the Lachin corridor was all about demining from the Azerbaijani side, that Armenia's complaints are quite consistent on what's happening. And the Azeris basically insisted that Armenian troops had entered into their country and that all these landmines and they were booby-trapping Azerbaijanis who were living there and discriminating against them. Now, with the blockade of the Lachin corridor, there's a lot of the things that you mentioned uh, were also all mentioned by Armenia. The Azeris, and I'm going to state this just because that is what they say is happening, said that this the corridor isn't actually blocked and it's not military doing it, but it's anti-oil protesters. All this to say, this has also grown to be a huge ICJ case with a lot of back and forth. And as a journalist who covers the ICJ, it's driving me slightly crazy because both governments have taken these American PR firms to do their PR about whatever they file. And they call you five, six times a day when they file something that they think is important. And every paragraph that gets added to the story, I get five calls about. And when I write a story. That says Armenia says this, I get the Azerbaijan side on the phone saying that their side should also be on it and vice versa. It's hard for us with that barrage of PR to tease out who is saying what. Now we we talked about Moreno Ocampo. Um Janet, you wanna take the Rodney Dixon critique of that?
2: Yeah, I think um we should add in what it is that has been said on the other side. I've just did a quick scan through of what we've heard from Rodney Dixon, King's Counsel, KC, because uh, Azerbaijan brought him in, and that's another one that's ended up in our inboxes. He calls the Luis Moreno Acampo opinion fundamentally flawed, basically says it's an unlawful and unrecognised regime. This was an groundless allegation, the genocide allegation. It's all exaggerated. There's a lack of context and a mischaracterization of the ICJ proceedings. I mean, you know, a lot more smoke than than detail here. And I'm wondering again, Mel, when you have all of this smoke from each side, you know, lots of interpretations, how do we cut to the chase? How do we cut to the reality? I think in this
0: situation, uh, there's a couple of things. And the first thing that's key to remember is that Azerbaijan is an authoritarian dictatorship that outright violates the human rights of its own people. There's no freedom of speech in Azerbaijan. So the media is controlled by Aliyev. It's controlled by the leadership of Azerbaijan. So nothing that's reported there deviates from the standard line that Aliyev wants everyone to know. So nobody in Azerbaijan really knows what's going on in in reality. it's, It's only the lines that they are fed by the leadership. So I think that's a really important thing to remember. and. You know, as I said, even talking about their allegations about the history of the region, all of that is disputed by anyone else, essentially. I think that's a really important thing to remember in the, in the basis of this when we're talking about an, an authoritarian dictatorship regime. Um, and and the messages that they're sending out, and they do consistently have have bots out there that will refute any allegations on social media that anybody makes and and target people who are speaking out against the Azerbaijani regime.
2: So I understand that's the context, the the baseline that you start with, but I mean you're a genocide scholar, and you have to I think then kind of hew to both facts on the ground and an interpretation of the Genocide Convention? I mean, is that where you go to? I think the other place
0: we need to look to is actually what do the victims say? What do the survivors, the victims, the people on the ground say? What what are they experiencing? And having heard firsthand testimony from people in Nagorno-Karabakh and people who have escaped Nagorno-Karabakh, it is an incredibly serious situation and people are experiencing terrible crimes I mentioned that I was in Canberra in March with representatives and, in fact, there were supposed to be two representatives from Nagorno-Karabakh and at the time there was still a road open and one of them ended up not being able to make it out because his convoy was fired upon as he was trying to leave the region and he ended up having to turn around and go back. So he couldn't make it out and there was serious concern that the representative who had come to Australia would not be able to get back in. What has happened going back to these allegations that Azerbaijan initially said, it's not us that has blocked the corridor, it's these eco-warriors, you know, this is an environmental protest, it's got nothing to do with us. But now, of course, they've installed an official checkpoint on the Lachin corridor and so they are officially there and officially blocking people from going in and coming out. So nobody has been able to enter or leave through the Lachin Corridor. Um, as I mentioned, even the International Committee of the Red Cross has been blocked from going in. And there is a huge line of trucks that have been sitting there for weeks trying to get into the area that are full with aid, food, medicines, these types of things, and unable to get in. In terms of thinking about the ICJ case, obviously, as you mentioned, this is a case not being brought under the Genocide Convention. It's being brought under the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. But if you look at things like general comments and the jurisprudence that comes out of the UN in relation to this convention, there still are connections to genocide and at least the prevention of genocide because, of course, race, racial discrimination, ethnic discrimination and that can lead to genocide and it is the starting point essentially of genocide that we start to see discrimination taking place and so it's really important to use these mechanisms as well so using these mechanisms where we have a risk of genocide is really important and and in fact and it's actually a good way for me to plug my recent book where I actually talk about we should use the human rights system more often where we have the genocide process starting but before we escalate to things like torture and killing and the extreme end of the genocide process. And I think that's a really smart move by Armenia is to bring an action undisserved. However, I think, honestly, we are at the point where an action could be brought under the Genocide Convention because what we need to remember, and the ICJ has talked about this in the Bosnia-Serbia case, uh, it's talked about the fact that the obligation under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide, the whole point of prevention is to stop it before it gets there. And so we are at a point where I believe that states have an obligation under the Genocide Convention to act to prevent genocide from occurring in Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, I think we are already there. I think we're beyond risk. But that obligation, I think, kicked in some time ago and certainly has kicked in now. And states should be taking action. And so there is room for there to be recourse taken in the ICJ under the Genocide Convention against Azerbaijan.
1: So your next move, if you had to advise the Armenian government, would be
0: possibly to file a genocide case with the ICJ? They absolutely could do that. I would think it would be a sensible thing to do because we are now talking about a population that has been cut off from food and medical aid. You know, there's 120,000 people living there that are now at risk. And well, it has begun. People are starving. There's nothing on the shelves. There's no food there.
1: And yet part of Armenia's move is to join the ICC. What can that do for Armenia? Because as you said, the ICC's jurisdiction is a sticky bit. It can prosecute crimes either committed on the territory of member states or by the nationals of member states. If you look at Nagorno-Karabakh officially and under international uh, agreements, that is actually the territory of Azerbaijan. And the Azeris are not nationals of member states. So it's a move to join the ICC. But is it a move that is calculated to do something about this conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh? And what could it really do, do you think? I
0: mean, you've pointed out the exact problem is is jurisdictional, that under international law, Nagorno-Karabakh is recognised as Azerbaijani territory and not Armenian territory, and therefore even if Armenia were to become a party to the ICC, that jurisdiction then would not extend to the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. So it puts it in a difficult position where essentially the only use of the ICC would then be to prosecute Armenian soldiers for any allegations of war crimes that they had committed in that area. So it is quite a difficult situation. And it's ironic because, as you mentioned, the ICC had just released its arrest warrant against Vladimir Putin and... Armenia has this relationship with Russia because Russian peacekeepers are the ones who are positioned there in Nagorno Karabakh. And so, at the time when the Constitutional Court delivered its finding that it was now constitutional and Armenia could join the ICC, Russia threatened Armenia. So, in fact, it's interesting because at the moment it could essentially jeopardize the relationship between Armenia and Russia. However, it's unlikely that Putin would visit Armenia, so it's unlikely that Armenia would have the opportunity to arrest and surrender him to the ICC. So I don't think that's really a significant issue in in the practical sense. So it does put them in this interesting situation of what can they really do with ratifying it. I absolutely support them doing it, and I think we all should do that because it's important to be part of that international criminal justice system but in terms of the practicality of being able to use that for the crimes being committed against Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, the there can be little recourse there. It would be quite difficult for them to do so. I think one of the ways that they could use it, though, is as I mentioned, Armenia does not have a particularly comprehensive law within its criminal code in terms of international crimes. I mean, the same can be said of the Azerbaijani criminal code as well. But if Armenia were to capture any, for example, prisoners of war from the Azerbaijani side, if they were to capture any Azerbaijanis who had allegedly committed crimes, they would then be able to prosecute them in their own jurisdiction, for example, for crimes committed against Armenians using that form of jurisdiction, protecting their own civilians But yes, it is absolutely, it's a little bit of a jurisdictional conundrum that we've got going on here with their ratification.
2: I'm sure you're conscious of this. I mean, I've certainly noticed as we've been doing the podcast over the last few years, the number of times you have a sense of states saying, okay, what's the next extra thing that we can do? Let's use a court. Um, as our vehicle, our mechanism to try to further our diplomatic, uh, political, and sometimes even our military aims. And so you get sort of these counter cases going on at the ICJ, you get a country like Armenia weighing up, you know, shall we join the ICC or not, and everybody interpreting it in very kind of geopolitical terms. And there's use of this term lawfare, you know, an alternative way of warfare. But do you think that that's a normal development yourself, the way that as these courts mature and get more embedded into our international system, that we end up with them being used more and more in these terms or being seen to be used like that? I think that the term lawfare can be overused
0: in the sense that people assume that, for example, just because a conflict is going on and a state uses an international legal mechanism that they are conducting lawfare but it's perfectly within their rights to use an international legal mechanism including courts and that's what they're there for they're there to be used we have treaties that are there to be used if we're talking about the laws of war we're talking about the geneva conventions they're there to be used in a time of conflict and and so for the icc to be a factor in this or for the ICJ to be a factor in this situation. I mean, Armenia brought the case before the International Court of Justice because there are violations, allegedly, violations going on of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So they should be using that. I mean, we should see more use of the ICJ when it comes to breaches of human rights treaties as well, more generally. But I hesitate to always use the word lawfare simply because there's also a conflict going on because we have these mechanisms there to be used and and they should be used more often and we would like to have more faith in them that they can be used as a mechanism, you know, a more low-key mechanism rather than armed conflict itself to bring an end to disputes between states. What do
1: you think about the scholars getting pulled into these position papers or, you know, Rod Dixon saying this, uh, Moreno Ocampo saying that? You have wrote as a scholar about the risk of genocide in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and you're now saying this has gone beyond the risk. You would suggest it's already happening know, do you get approached by the Armenian government? Like, wouldn't you like to write a blog about this or that? I'm just trying to figure out how that goes behind the curtain because I only see the outcome of it when it's pushed on me by the public relations firms.
0: Certainly it is part of the role of scholars and to be advocates. It's not an obligation part of the role, so not everybody takes that on and that's perfectly fine. But for those who want to do advocacy, we are, I think, well placed to do that because we become experts in the field. We are experts in the subject matter, but we also can be experts in the region of that area as well. And I'm always cautious of essentially, as we say, staying in my lane. And so for example, the, the political side of things is not always within my lane. So I don't always want to delve too much into that. My area of expertise is the law, but. Obviously, politics and international relations comes into that a bit as well. But we certainly, we get approached by entities to write things about this and to give advice and to give assistance and advocacy. I do work a lot with Armenians. I attend the Armenian government's Global Forum Against the Crime of Genocide, um, which is a major event held every two years that brings together not just scholars, but also UN representatives, government representatives, um, even members from the corporate sector to talk about how we can better prevent and punish um, and educate about the crime of genocide. I also do a lot of work with Armenian national committees in different countries, Australia, for example, and the UK. So these are the the types of of work that we can do. And and obviously also for states, when we can get approached for that. And I think... It's an academic's choice as to whether or not they take that on, but when they take it on, they generally, they should be well-placed to do that because of the expertise that they have. That's one of the reasons why I appreciate when the media wants to talk about the law, because law is a really complex thing and it's really difficult to understand if you haven't spent years researching and working in it. And so when the media actually wants to talk to us to say, hang on, how does this work? What is the situation? I think that's really great because then they're putting out that education to the non-legal person to help them understand how it's working. To me, that's how I perceive part of the job that we have as as scholars and experts in the field.
2: Well, thanks so much for uh, making the time to chat to us from uh, Minnesota We've got a couple of questions that we always ask at the end one of them is is there a current case that you have that you kind of are using in your teaching or anything like that that uh, like to refer back to for for everybody to to say hey this is something you should always pay pay attention to is there a, a good case that you'd like to uh, to tell us about I think the current thing that is on my agenda has been the Australian
0: war crimes investigations and so that's something. That, you know, has to be renewed in my teaching every year at the moment. And I'm also going to bring into my teaching here at the University of Minnesota to give American students a bit of awareness about what's going on with the Australian war crimes investigation. So we have one soldier, Oliver Schultz, who's been arrested for the war crime of murder um and that case is pending so we'll see that coming up but we've also had and i think people may, may have seen this the crazy defamation case of ben robert smith he brought against two journalists in particular but uh you know obviously the newspapers news agencies that published their work um where he they published allegations that he had committed war crimes in afghanistan and he brought a defamation case against them and ultimately they did find for the journalists um he has indicated that he will appeal So it is a very interesting, I wrote a blog post about that for Opinio Eurus, but it is an extremely interesting case that those of us in Australia who work in international criminal law and international humanitarian law have watched with great interest because we didn't expect that we would see a kind of de facto war crimes trial played out in a civil case, in a defamation case. And there was a lot of information that came out about that and including the fact that the Office of the Special Investigator, which is the office established in Australia to investigate allegations of war crimes committed by Australian special forces in Afghanistan, that they actually have been Robert Smith as a person of interest in their investigation, so we do know that. It was a very interesting defamation trial uh, from that perspective and it will be interesting to keep an eye out and see what happens with the appeal of that, Um, but also going forward watching not only the Oliver Schultz case but we do know that it is highly likely there will be other charges that are going to be brought against other current or former Special Forces soldiers.
2: Thank you so much for the summary of that, Mal. We know that that's something we've got to come back to. So uh, maybe we'll use your little summary as the introduction in our next podcast that we do about this because you've summarised it all. But yeah, we'll definitely um, make links to all of those things. Steph?
1: And if you want to know more on the background of that, we also did a podcast on the Barrettin Report, which came out, which is a part of the report that alleges those uh, war crimes and uh, what happens with some other Australian scholars. So we will link to that in the show notes. Then finally, Mo, we always ask, what are you reading, watching, listening to? Have you been binge-watching um, Fargo to prepare for your time at the University of Minnesota, for instance?
0: Uh, I had a few people tell me to watch out for wood chippers when I moved here. Um, (laughs) Well, now that I'm in the US, I've been able to access Hulu. So I've been catching up on some things. Uh, They have some great content um, on there. So I've been watching um, Only Murders in the Building, which is a lot of fun. In terms of reading, I'm actually reading, uh, apart from the quick John Grisham that I read on the the flight over, I have been reading uh, Hillary Clinton's book about her time as Secretary of State which is really interesting to read a few years later because she talks about a lot of different situations, including Armenia and Azerbaijan. And when you come to the end, you kind of feel this sense of sadness because she has ended a lot of her stories with a sense of hope that things were looking up. And many of them are no longer looking up. Many of them have have gone downhill since then, even though they were on the uphill trajectory. So I think... It's quite interesting to you know, not have read that at the time when it came out, but to be reading it a few years later to see what has changed because she, she talks about situations all over the world. Yeah, that's quite an interesting one to be looking at now.
2: Well, thank you so much, Mel. There were just so many different strands to this story. I think that we've covered all of them a bit. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more to say. And uh, thank you for, uh, for making the time.
1: This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.